Hello and welcome to Tickets, a podcast series exploring the future of live experiences. Each episode, we take you behind the scenes with the visionaries, producers and operators delivering some of the most vital and innovative experiences around. From Broadway theatre to international boxing, virtual reality to retail. Tickets aims to join the dots between disciplines, share knowledge and new ideas and better understand what goes into bringing these experiences to life. My name's Howard Gray. I'm the founder of H Bureau, a specialist consultancy practice helping media, entertainment and experience companies grow. What do you get if you combine circus performance, immersive theatre and electronic music? The answer is El Row, a global events brand based in Barcelona. The party started at a venue in the city in 2010, but this business goes back to the mid-19th century, staying in the same family for nearly 150 years. On the guest list today is Victor de la Serra, Elro's global talent director, overseeing programming for events around the world. In this highly entertaining conversation, we talk about the importance of thinking about the long game, how to stay ahead in a competitive market, and when the mud and rain aren't as bad as they seem. Enjoy. Victor, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank um, you for having well, me. Welcome to New York. I know yes. you just flew in last night. <laughs> I did. And you're looking remarkably fresh. Um, I think, is it the carrot juice? Is that what's... That's the carrot juice, yeah. That's definitely. the, se- that's the that's secret. The, that's the morning uh, apple, carrot and, uh, and orange juice. That um, makes me look like this. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good tip. Um, so you're here in New York uh, for a big show this weekend. Yep. Um, I think we'll get into that later. Maybe first off, for someone who maybe isn't familiar with Elro, or maybe isn't even familiar with electronic music that much, yeah. could you maybe explain what Elro is about? Sure, Elro is um, is an immersive party. It's like a 360 party, and when I say immersive, it's because you're not focused uh, solely on the DJ, which is normally what uh, people have the concept for electronic music, because you know it's like a, this god adoring kind of character who sits in a box high above everyone else and controls the crowd and and yes we still have that factor obviously we work with DJs and the lineup is a very important part but Elro is known because we have we, we, we change completely the environment of every club that we work with that we go uh, we have like a front of stage decorations we have stage and uh, decoration on the ceilings we have decoration on the sides we have uh, street performers that are um, that come into the party. We have actors that interact with the people. We have steel walkers. We have confetti. We have that kind of effects. So, if you put all together, it just makes for a more immersive experience than than your normal club night. I would I would say. So I love that the website actually describes Elro as entertainers since 1870. Yeah, uh, there's this amazing story. Um, I think with a lot of modern experiences a lot of dance music stuff particularly um there's not that much history like it maybe maybe there's events going back maybe 20 or 30 years but in your case the the it's a family business and it goes back 130 40 years or something yeah. like that can you can you kind of tell the story yeah, of, of how course. how everything started in the it's, family it's it's a, it's um everything started with what's well, all from the from the Arnau family uh, which is the ones who to this day um, manage manage our role um yeah in 1870 in a small village uh, the great 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 grandfather or i don't know how many greats are in the middle but uh <laughs> um he started like a little cafe uh, and you know, started to it was just a cafe, so they started bring like like vedettes and things like that. Or it was you know, it was a bit um, yeah. They tr- it would, they they come from a very 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 small village in in the north of Spain, the north uh, northeastern Spain. 
So um, for them to have something like that, uh, you know, it was it was the kind of the focal point of the village where the men used to go and play cards and drink and you know entertain themselves. <laughs> and um, it just grew from there. He, he, you know, they started uh, having like a dance, like a dance hall. Uh, it was it was at the point where even the you know the the men and the women couldn't dance together. You have to ask permission to the mother. Like the women would be sitting on one side of the dance hall with their mums, and you know the guy would have to come up to the mum, and if the mum approved, he would just touch the elbow of the of the daughter, and the daughter would be able, would be allowed to go and dance. And uh, from there, it turned into a cinema. Um, the cinema became um, became like another dance hall again. It had like a combined. Uh, we had people like Antonio Machin and people like that come came to play. Um, the great grandfather of Juan he used to go to Vegas to uh, to see the shows, and they wanted to bring them because they always come to like Madrid or Barcelona, you know, the capital cities. But nothing, nobody would travel anywhere outside of those cities, and so the, he managed uh, he managed to um, to bring them there. Um, I'm making this story short because otherwise we could be here for uh, <laughs> it's 140 for, uh, years. Yeah, of story, for 140 yeah. years uh, sitting there, <laughs> sitting here talking about this. But um, to come come into place into uh, what became why it became electronic music. Um, uh, Juan's uh, Juan Juan Arnau Senior, which is still to this day is still very much active in the in the company. Uh, they discovered that they heard there was some electronic music being played. Uh, uh, the rave parties are legal parties around Europe. So uh, this is like early, late 80s, early 90s, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, um, yeah all, the, when all the rave parties started in, you know, Northern Europe, France, Berlin, UK. So they decided to get on a car and the couple, the Juan, uh, Juan's parents, and they, they, they just basically went raving. They went traveling to see all these raves in Paris, in Manchester, in Berlin, and you know, they discovered techno music basically, and they decided that they wanted that for for their club. The club was failing. The, flag, the club was really failing. They had the family had a, a lot of money invested in agriculture as well, and they had like a, um, I don't know how you call it, but like a, like a disease, and they had to kill all the. They had to kill all the animals, so they were they were bankrupt. And he, but they still they still had the venue. They and still had is, the venue. This is in Fraga, right? Yeah, this is yeah. in Fraga. Yeah, um, this is in Fraga. Fraga is like about ninety minutes drive from Barcelona, on the border between Aragon and and Catalonia. And um, they, um, I think the story goes like Juan's uh, Juan's dad went to the, his to his father, and he was uh, look, you can give everything to the bank, just don't give them the venue. You can get rid of the land, get rid of everything you want, but don't give them the don't give them the venue. So he started um, calling. It's funny because he obviously at that time there was no emails, there was there was nothing, just a phone. So they had to call the the DJ. They would talk directly to the DJ. They would go to a rave. They would see Jeff Mills. So they would see Carl Cox. So they would see Sven Vath. They would see uh, Laurent Garnier. And they were like, "Oh, we have a venue in Barcelona." They had to lie to the DJs and tell them that the venue was in Barcelona. Because nobody would go to Fraga. Fraga is like a ten thousand people uh, village, very rural village. There's there's nothing around it in the middle of the desert. Um, so yeah, the, so the the DJs would go like, okay, fine, you know, I'll go. And they used to pick them up in Barcelona airport <laughs> and drive two hours. <laughs> and the DJs are saying, are we nearly like, there? Are we nearly there? Yeah, where are we? <laughs> 
the good thing about the venue is that the venue, which is this venue, is called Florida 135. Um, this has been open as Florida 135 from when it was a cinema dance hall for 75 years. We did 75 years anniversary back in December. Um, and the venue is incredible. It was, uh, it was designed by a Spanish architect and it's kind of like a mixture of a Blade Runner set in, the, in a Chicago main street. You have like houses on the sides, you can go into the buildings. Um, they have like we have a cinema still inside that you can actually go and they're screaming, they're screening like videos, like music videos. Uh, you have a champagne bar, you have a karaoke bar, you have a merchandising shop, uh, you have a coffee shop. Um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Well, uh, people to this day, uh, when they walk in and they see it for the first time, so it was like really ahead of its time, right? When way, it first way, opened. way ahead of its time. Very, very ahead of its time. They always say that the, I don't know why, but they are now family. They're always ahead of their time. They do something new, it doesn't work, and it doesn't work because it's just way ahead of the time. So did this? Did, did these uh, techno events they started doing in the mid-90s, did they work to start with? Uh, not at the beginning, no. No, they didn't work. People didn't understand what was going on. Uh, it changed from very different kind of music to suddenly thumping electronic music. And people were confused. Uh, people didn't know what was going on. And the club lost a lot of money, but they, they kept going. I think uh, the good thing about their now family, I think, is they, and they're very, very right in this. And, you know, time has proved them right. That if you have an idea that you know is going to work and you think it really is good, then you should push it and eventually it does work. And, you know, it happened with Florida, it happened with... Uh, with the dance halls before and it's happened with Elro these days. Let's fast forward to kind of the more recent past. Mm -hmm. um, my first exposure to Elro, I don't think I actually realized it at the time, was the Row 14 Club, yep. uh, just outside Barcelona, mm -hmm. just outside the city center. Um, and I think I was, I was, I used to go to the city a lot and that was my kind of first time experiencing what yeah. I guess is now at the early stages of what is now Elro. Very early stages, um, yeah. Uh, can you tell me about that time and kind of how you got involved in, in the yeah. family business? Um, Row 14 is, um, the, the whole family moved from Fraga to Barcelona when Juan Jr., which is the CEO now of, of Elro, um, had to go to university. They're a very, very close-knit family. They, they, to this day, they still eat lunch together every day. Um, so they, they decided that if one of the, you know, if Juan had to move to Barcelona to study, then the whole family was going to move together. So obviously, uh, being, uh, you know, entertainers, as they like to be called, uh, which they are, they decided that they wanted to replicate what they had in Fraga with Florida 135, um, but in Barcelona. So they opened uh, the open row at the beginning, which was a club in Barcelona, which you probably, I didn't even go there, um, you know. So that, that was open for a few years as a nightclub in Barcelona. And then Juan's dad uh, discovered uh, row 14, which is the venue that to this day is still is still a row. Um, it's a unique venue, it's uh, about 14, well, it's 14 kilometers outside of Barcelona and it's opposite the airport. And when he started, they, he just replicated what, what was going on at Florida, which is a nightclub with DJs and that's it. Um, it, it didn't really work. Um, they lost a lot of money. And they, there was a loophole in Spain where you could open as an after party in the morning uh, if you were closed for a certain amount of hours. It's something weird with the law. If you have a bar, you can be open until 3, then you close at 3 or 4 hours, then you can open again at 7 a.m. Um, so there was no regulation at the time. So they opened as an after party. And still wasn't working the way they wanted, but, you know, you, when, you know when you can see that people are coming and they, you know, they're having something different. 
And I think it was pretty much at the end that they, they were like, look, this is not going to, you know, it's not feasible. It's not, it doesn't make enough money, so we sh maybe we should close. They were like, oh, why don't we, when we do play with, why don't we play with the crowd? And they went to one of these, like, Chinese wholesale shops and started buying, like, water guns, toys and stuff like that to give to the crowd. And something clicked on that moment and people were having fun. We, I think Barcelona, being the city of Barcelona, played a very important part because the venue is open air. So, you know, it's sunny normally, it's normally good weather, it doesn't rain that much. So I think it helps that people have like an open air space where they can play and they can be kids again. And then Elro just started growing from there and growing because people started talking, people were started coming back. And yeah, I think it naturally and gradually grew to uh, to what it is now. So the brand kind of grew organically out of these Sunday morning parties where the guys had just yeah. gone to this store and bought water guns Com and other stuff. Completely. People think that because, because obviously Elro has, gone, has, has exploded in the past uh, three years. So a lot of people think that this just happened overnight, but uh, it really has been happening since 1870. <laughs> <laughs> That's the overnight it's success. It's been brewing, brewing yeah. since 1870. So how did you get involved uh, working with the Elro team? I am, I am originally from Huesca, which is like the main capital closest to Fraga. Um, so when I grew up, I loved electronic music and Florida 135 and Monegros Desert Festival, which I'm sure you've heard of. Is a, Monegros started as a, an after party from Florida in a piece of land that the, the family owned and uh, they just closed Florida once that and they decided to go to the desert for an after party, for a private after party. And, uh, he, you know, they, they at the time they used to work with the guys from Advanced Music, which is Sonar. So they um, they were like, oh, this is actually cool. It's a cool location. Maybe we should start doing something more regularly. And Monegros started there just, I think, one year before Sonar or the same year as Sonar, so like 25 years ago. Um, so coming back to how I how I started, I, I lived in Huesca. So for me, the first clubbing experience I ever had in my life was Florida 135. And the best and, and the first uh, festival experience I ever had in my life was Monegros Desert Festival. Because when you are from there, it's, that's you know, that's where you that's where you look at for the music. And we had Carl Cox, we had Jeff Mills, we had like Octave One, we had all the big guys from Detroit. They were playing there week in week out. We had the Spanish people like Angel Molina and Oscar Mulero playing every week as well. So if you like the electronic music, uh, that was your point of reference. In in fact, in Spain, it's still called the Cathedral of Techno. Um, and there was a joke saying the one Florida one three five the meant that there was first of Spain, third of Europe, fifth of the world. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I've, like, actually, to this day, I haven't even asked if that's a, an urban legend or is something that... Uh, I think, well, let's let's, think, let's think that it's true. I kind of like it. I, I, I like I, to think like that it. it's true, yeah. I like it. I think, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm close to 40 years old now and I've traveled all over the world uh, in parties and I, have it, I still, to this day, haven't seen a venue like Florida 135. So you kind of grew up around that yeah like both a club and a festival with all these yeah. amazing artists yeah, so. yeah i mean the first time i went to florida 135 was probably in like 96 97 and uh, this was ju probably just as it was kind of taking off right yeah. you said in the first couple of years it was really really tough yeah, and yeah, then yeah, it started yeah. to get more popular yeah i remember seeing like uh you know like kevin sunderson back to back uh Derek may for like four hours in there like years and years ago Laurent garnier doing like long sets and live sets and you know like listen to the early techno in there it was um, yeah it was amazing did you know immediately that you wanted to be part of that or was it just like something cool that you wanted to do at the weekend it was just <laughs> something for fun at the weekends 
I wanted to be in music because at the time I was I started to DJ as well uh, in my hometown. So I knew I wanted to be part of the music industry in some shape or form. If you ask my 16 or 17 year old now, if they see me, what I'm doing now, I, it would be impossible. In fact, the day I got the call to start working, well, not to start working, just to see if I was interested in coming for an interview. I've, I think that was the day I've been most nervous in my whole life. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's like if you start, you're, you know, you're from the UK, imagine, you know, your first festival experience is Glastonbury and one day and Michael Levis calls you up and says, hey, do you want to come and work for us and book the talent for uh, this festival? And you're like... <laughs> well, first you probably think it's a, it's one of your friends, like, yeah, probably, pulling a yeah. joke on you. <laughs> So when did you get involved? Uh, how long yeah, after that, those first experiences so did you I, then get the I, call? Obviously, I started going clubbing there. Um, uh, Juan, both uh, the family is very, very approachable and very open, and they like the people that you know. They love when people from the from the same area start working in the industry and do do well. So I I moved to uh, to study to London in '99. Um, studied sound engineering and music technology. And then automatically, after a year in London, I started working in London and I was a resident in uh, Pasha for a few years, uh, Ministry of Sound, and I was playing around Europe. So I had started having friends in the industry and I remember coming back to Florida, I don't know, maybe like early 2000s. And I came with one of the DJs who was the guest and he introduced me to, to Juan Arnau, pro officially. And he was like, oh, this is Victor he's from Huesca, he's a DJ in London. And in, you know, from that day, I've always had a good relationship with them. And then in 2010, I came back to uh, Spain from London uh, because I was offered to open and manage uh, DJ Mag in Spain. So Juan Arnau, the father, was the first one to support me uh, when, when I opened the magazine. He was my first, the first person I contacted when I opened it, and he was the first one to um, buy advertisement and support me in everything that I could, giving me content, giving me full access to Monegros, to Florida, and everything. So the, the connection just, you know, was always there. Every time I would go to Barcelona, I would see them. And um, yeah, then I moved to Australia to open DJ Mag in Australia. Um, after a year, I decided to come back to Spain because Australia is just too far away from, from everything we know. <laughs> and then when I came back, uh, it was ex it was probably chance because after a couple of months that I was back in Spain, I wasn't working. I was just like, you know, relaxing for a bit. It was uh, summer. And the booker for, uh, the, the main booker for uh, for the company, for Florida Monegros and El Ro, um decided to quit after close to 12 or 13 years in the in the company. And by chance, a friend of mine who is now the resident DJ of Florida, um, he told them, oh, you know, Victor is, is back from Australia and he's actually just not doing anything. So that's the day I got the call from, from Juan and he was like, Hey, what are you doing? Are you busy? And I'm like, no, I just got back from Australia. Like, well, come back to come to Barcelona tomorrow. We need to talk. And that was and, it. And that was it. <laughs> and that's that was four years ago. Amazing. So that so after uh yeah, twelve twelve years of the other booker working there, and then yeah. just so happened you've been back in town for a yeah. couple of months. It's kind of luck, but also the fact that that twenty that what fifteen, twenty year relationship with the yeah. with the venues and the music. I think I think for them obviously I have I mean I th I think I've you know I've done an okay job, otherwise I wouldn't be here now. Uh, <laughs> but um because obviously they were seeing other people. I wasn't the only. I wasn't the only option. But I think for them it's very important that you are 
that you're a humble person and you know they know the people that they come from the same area as them and they've known me for a long time and you know everyone can learn any job and anything you know you're not fully prepared for your job ever for when you change jobs i don't think you never are no, i agree um so you you can learn and i think in this business especially in the music industry business the, the most you know the best quality that you can have is being being a humble person and have no ego and i think that's something that i i do have you know, I might be bad at many, many things, but at least I think my ego is under control. And I think maybe you're a bit too modest. Yeah. But I do, I do, <laughs> I do agree with you. Um, so you then started as the uh, in booking with the with the company like four or five years ago, and at this point, the company was based in, was in moved to Barcelona. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you mentioned that the roots are kind of in Fraga, which is yeah. the hometown of the family, but Barcelona's kind of become the new home because uh, yeah. members of the family have moved and there. It obviously, and the makes sense there. as well. You know, when you have a company that is growing, and you know, El Roy was growing. Not, not. I mean, when I started, there was a handful of events being made in France and Italy, but nothing else. And but obviously it makes sense to have a company that you know has like an expectation to grow. Is it makes sense to have it on a on a capital city? Yeah. And the family was already living in Barcelona, so. So Barcelona is one of my favorite cities. I'm sure for many listeners it probably is too. Um, yeah. And we were talking a little bit about Barcelona just before we started recording. Um, what's your take on on the city right now? Because it's it's kind of got this uh, amazing reputation. It, it's a real hotbed for food, for music, for parties, yeah. for. For, for tourism, you know, tourism is a huge business there. Um, what do you think it is that makes the city tick and what makes it kind of such a, a hot spot for music and partying and enjoying life? I think Barcelona is a very welcoming city. Uh, first, because of the weather. We have a very Mediterranean weather, which is, you know, this, this year has been pretty cold, but we've had like a three or four weeks of winter. You know? We are in New York, Victor. Yeah, so no, rel exactly. relative to New York, three to four weeks <laughs> of winter. And I lived in London for 11 years. So <laughs> yeah, I, know you know, exactly, you know. I know exactly what real winter is. And I come from the north of Spain, so that, that's that's pretty cold. So the, the weather is pretty mild all year round. Um, it's not an expensive city to live in. Uh, it's not expensive. You can go to like super like Michelin star rated uh, restaurants and you would still spend maybe like 100, 150 euros. Which, you know, if you go to a Michelin break the star yeah, restaurant in New York or in London, you need to be ready to uh, yeah. to pay a little bit a little bit more. <laughs> um and also it's a city that that has you know, I think it's a very, very and very European city. It's a very multicultural city. There's a lot of people coming from everywhere. I lived in Madrid and I love Madrid. I love Madrid to bits. Uh it's you know, I love it. But Madrid is very, very Spanish in a way that can can, for some other people to come over can be not threatening but you know it can be a bit more difficult while Barcelona has I think maybe because it's on the coast I don't know it's always had such an influx of people from everywhere that is I think it's a much more global city it's one of those capitals of the world I think that is super global yeah I agree I think I, I love Madrid too um, but the, Barcelona has a very different vibe yeah it's a you know if I had to choose between the two of them I would not be able to choose so I spent four years in Madrid and I love my time in Madrid and every time I go to Madrid I love Madrid I, I really love it now living in Barcelona is a different thing you know it's just different the only thing that would make me choose one over the other is Barcelona is a bit is a bit smaller than Madrid so I prefer that that I can walk many places you have a beach but other than that if you know 
closely uh, like if you had to think all the where to live it, it would be hard because you know i would i would go to live in madrid tomorrow if i have to i don't think anyone actually knows this but the part of the reason that i called this podcast tickets is because there is a restaurant in barcelona yes. called tickets that one was my, actually one of my favorites. that was actually part of the reason for the name <laughs> really i hope they won't sue me for that no don't it's worry it's more yeah. of an homage I can, I can it's, more of a, it's a compliment we, we go we go to tickets a lot Xavi, the director is a very very close friend right, of so us. next time i'm in town we can go Please. i hope they'll be nice yeah, yeah, to yeah. me for for borrowing the name it's more it's a compliment well, i think we can i think we can work on that i think we should be okay so that's the day we're going to go to tickets next yeah. time in Barcelona. <laughs> so obviously Elrose, the, the the whole company's based in Barcelona. So you're doing parties there regularly and the venue, st- the, the yeah. road venue is still the a venue, big part well, of what you do. The venue has had a bit of a rough story because um, the venue started when, when it started becoming really popular. We were open at 6 a.m. until 5 in the afternoon. So it was like a, like a proper after party. Um, then it was, uh, I can't remember the year, but it was election year. So uh, the, gov- the local government decided that they didn't want an after party and it was bad for uh, election year. So they closed us down. Um, so we got closed down. That was probably like seven years ago, something like that. We got closed down. Then somebody else, after election, somebody else tried to take over the the venue. And uh, it kind of like, to cut the story short, it was like, we'd rather have you there because at the end of the day uh, you know they're now family and we, we we are a very professional company and we work very closely with the police with the traffic police with the Guardia Civil with the you know with the government with local government we do everything very very much by the book because I think it's the only way that you can survive in this business you know? yeah I agree I think you can pr- you can probably get away with it for a few years if you don't but realistically eventually yeah, realistically if you want to have if you want to have some kind of longevity in this business you need to play by the book and to be fair, if some when something happens, because something is bound to happen when you you know when you do events for like thousands of people, something is bound to happen. Whether it's a football match or it's a club, I don't care. Something is bound to happen. If you do everything by the book and you can prove that everything is done by the book, you're gonna be fine, you know, because accidents happen everywhere. Um, so, so yeah. So in the end, the council came back like, look, you know, we rather have you back. So we said okay, but we want to open in the mornings. We want to open in the mornings legally without any kind of problems so now we open once a month uh but we have one very very rare license or permit uh, that we can do it because we open from uh 11 a.m in the morning to 11 p.m at night and 12 hours once a month that's it so let's talk about the um the growth outside of barcelona for the company because it's gone from like we were saying it's at the 140 year overnight success yeah. so, well, i suppose in el rose case it's more like um what's eight eight nine years uh, something like that this year we celebrate in el rose on july the eighth anniversary right the eighth and, anniversary and i think and i might be wrong in here because i wasn't here yet but i think it's from when it got close and we started on this format of like a 12 hours daytime party so that's the that's the kind of birthday yeah point so um, with eight years now from this kind of buying water guns in the local supermarket <laughs> to, to what it is now, um, can you talk a little bit about what happened in that time going from just these parties at Row in Barcelona to, to this kind of global network I mean, of events you have now? I think the, um, the breaking point in here, to call it that way, um, Posibiza. I think that's that's when people really started realizing about us because obviously in Barcelona you still you know you get your locals but as a tourist when you go to Barcelona you end up always going to the same clubs 
you're not going to Rasmatas, you know, you go to uh, Moog or you go to Macarena or, you know, you go to the venues that you see mainly advertised during Sonar Week because that's when, or Primavera Week, that's when everyone comes, you know. Um, so Elro was there, uh, but he, he wasn't much noticed outside of Spain. Maybe south of France, because we get a lot of people trolling from south of France. Uh, that's why the first Elros that we did outside of uh, Spain were mainly um, France, south of France and some in Italy. But when we when we started in Ibiza, and that was, let me see, that's two in Amnesia, three in space, two in, so that's two, five, seven, so yeah, pretty much eight years ago. The first party we did was at the Zoo Project at the Benimusa Park, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was really crazy. <laughs> and then... That, so that just for someone who hasn't been there, because that, that place is crazy, that's a, yeah. is it, it's an old zoo, it's like it's a disused, abandoned, abandoned zoo in Ibiza. Yeah. It's um, an abandoned zoo in Ibiza, where they, they do a very famous party, it's called the Zoo Project, it's been there for a long time. And for anyone that hasn't been there, the the stages are inside like uh, a sea lion. Um, yeah, it's where pit. you watch. Yeah, that's where you watch the sea lions, yeah, right? It's that's really one of the stages. For yeah. example, the DJ is on the pit, and everyone is like dancing where the sitting area used to be. It's kind of like amphitheater. It's an incredible venue. If you if you ever go to Ibiza and have a chance yeah, to see it's it, a, it's a crazy venue. place, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you need to go see it. So we did the first time. First party was there. We only did one party, and then the next year. Uh, Jose Mari, the owner of uh, Privilege, wanted to refurbish the Coco Loco room, which is now the Vista Club. So he got together with uh, Juan Juan Arnau, with, his, with Juan's, Juan's father. And uh, he he completely designed and refurbished the whole club. And we said, like, okay, we'll do this, but we need to have, a, we'll name it and we do everything for you, but we want to have exclusivity for one year. So that's that's where we started El Row on, uh, on Saturdays at the Vista Club. And that was like redesigning, redecorating it, all the production, you guys Building were kind of reimagining the whole thing. The whole venue, which is still to this day is the same. I don't know if you've seen it, but now has like a, all the window glass so you can see the sun coming up from the, from the, from the dance floor. It's, it's, it's beautiful. So we started there and... At the beginning, most of our crowd was obviously Spanish, and that's, you know, we started on Saturdays, which is traditionally the worst day for Ibiza. Um, but it worked for us, because Barcelona being so close to Ibiza, we had people that would just fly in on Saturday, on Saturday afternoon or Saturday morning, spend the day in Ibiza, party, and then fly back on Sunday morning. Uh, in fact, for many years, we've used to do a ferry uh, three or four times a year where you could like buy your ferry with a ticket. We did an annual road party on the ferry on the way to Ibiza. People would come do the party and then take the ferry back the next day. <laughs> so it would, it would work really well for us. Um, and then obviously we, you know, the party started getting some momentum. We grew out of uh, Vista Club, which is too small for us. That's when we moved into a uh, space and we did two years at space on Saturdays where we shared with Kahakuma. We did the main room and Kehakuma did the, the terrace. And obviously the last year of uh, Space, when we were already expanding worldwide, the party was very popular. And so was it that time at Space that you sort of could feel things starting to happen yeah, outside I of... I think that's, that's the years at Space where you could see that it was just really changing, you know? You could see the crowd was getting more and more international. We were getting phone calls from other from other places. Um, I remember four years ago when I started, they we did our first party in London. And I was, because I lived in London for 11 years, I knew the market very well. So I thought this was something that wouldn't work in London, you know? Because it's too carnivalesque and, you know, people in London take their music seriously, you know? Um, and we did the Village Underground for the first time. Uh, I can't remember 
eight now. I think it's March or something like March or April. And we didn't even sell out. Uh, we sold like three or four hundred tickets out of seven hundred, which is the capacity for uh, Village Underground. And after that, it just boom, it just exploded. So did you think on that first event? Did you think this isn't going to work? Because you no, were well, you were thinking this London going to th- at that time we were not selling out. We were not even selling out Barcelona. You know, it was just we were doing we were doing okay. Obviously, it was getting popular, but it wasn't like it is now, where we can sell. Uh, you know, we sold a uh, fifteen thousand capacity event last year in like an hour it's in london <laughs> that's that's unheard of and that was in that's so that's within three years uh, from the first that's, event that's to the, within yeah two and a half three years two and a half three years yeah so you re- you think that, that that kind of period of space maybe was when it really started to go crazy yeah, yeah because it, the good thing about ibiza uh whether you love it or hate it is that ibiza has new people every week from all over the world so you could literally have the same decoration every week in ibiza and it would still be different people seeing it every week. Because when you go to Ibiza, you go and, you know, you spend a week on holidays, you go to three or four clubs, you do your, you know, you do whatever you have to do, and then you go back, and normally you don't come back to Ibiza, because Ibiza is expensive. Um, So people normally save to go to Ibiza. And uh, it has such a melting pot of people. Uh, You have people from Australia, you have people from the UK, from Holland, from Germany, from France, that, you know, Elro started to gain momentum and people were talking, oh, have you seen this party? It's crazy, you know? They just changed completely the room. You don't don't realize that you are in space. I remember when I've been going to space for almost 20 years and the first time that I went with Elro, I started working at Elro and then I went back to normal night uh, at space and I was like, oh... (laughs) <laughs> it's the same venue and I love space it's, you know it's one of my favorite clubs in the world um, but I think yeah the, the being in Ibiza and word of mouth and people you know really enjoying and we did we did really good parties in Ibiza you know and I think it all clicked more, both musically and because I think also before I started uh, the music was a bit all over the place because they were doing one day you could see Ben Sims the next day you could see a house act the next day you'll have a, I don't know uh, Vitalik, you know, it was very, very different because he was coming from the Florida and Monegro's years. So they were incorporating the same DJs that they used to use for those for those venues. And I think when I came, I it changed a little bit. I went a bit more housey. I will be. I went a bit more UK. You know, it was more your Seth Rogler, Patrick Toppins, uh, Apollonia, and it was a bit more of a cooler music, which also attracted a crowd that traditionally wouldn't have gone to um, wouldn't have gone to El Rome. So maybe for someone who hasn't been to an Elro, can you maybe explain what what does one of these themes feel like? Is there one any any famous ones that come to mind? Yeah, there's there's many different ones. There's like uh, Chinese New Year where everything is decorated around like dragons and like red uh, lanterns and stuff like that. There's a Feria de Abril which is um, you know it's like about the Spanish fair in Seville where everything's like. Everything has Spanish themes. We have a Bollywood one which is like uh, Bollywood actors and. Yeah, we we're very you know we try to take piece out of the take the piece out of the stereotypes and things like that. Uh, but I think one of the most famous ones is called the Singer Morning. Um, the Singer Morning is, which obviously doesn't make any sense uh, in English, is a straight translation of Canta Mañanas, which is a Spanish uh, Spanish word. Canta Mañana is someone that is very very out there, you know, like has no shame in anything, or dress in any way or do whatever. So, uh, canta mañanas is canta is sing and mañanas is morning. So, singer mornings is, you know, <laughs> it's a, it was a straight one. And for this one, 
all the characters are the most the craziest ones uh, when we do the big stage it's uh it's like a whole house so every, every with a in in the whole it's a whole building the dj booth is in the middle and every building has its own uh, apartments so something happens in every apartment there's like a butcher shop there's a fishmonger there's a whorehouse there's like all all <laughs> kinds of different weird stuff goes on in in here and also we do have a lot of massive inflatable uh, toys so you can play football with your friends while being, you know, tied up to something. Uh, we have like a castle, like Takeshi's Castle, where you have to run. And I used to love that shows. show, yeah. Takeshi's Castle. Yes, yeah, so we have like <laughs> things like that that are super weird. We have like a, you know, like the, you know, the bull that you ride, which is the movie. Yep. I don't know how you call it, uh, but we have that with a surfboard. Uh, I don't know. It's just crazy. It's it's very very. It's a very famous party for us. And, and all this stuff's like designed in house, right? Everything is designed in house. All the characters, all the actors, everything is. Uh, we have uh, Nico, which is our like character director. If you want, he has a he's, he has a background in being a clown, like professional clown. So he designs all the characters, designs the clothes, makes a backstory of uh, each character. So when an actor comes to work at Elro, we, you give them a backstory of the act of the actor they're playing. Because we want the actor to come and they want to touch you, you know, they want to, uh, you know, throw something on you. They, it needs to be, you need to be part, it's very important that the experience at Elro is immersive. It needs to be, you need to feel that you're part of the show. You know, that's that's the main thing about us. So sometimes when you do the shows away and you have to hire actors and some people, some promoters, like they give you dancers and then, oh, I don't want to touch people. I don't want to. No, this is not what we want. You know, we we want you to interact with the people. We, we you know, we give away shows. We have someone walking around with a tray full of shots and just give them away to people. Uh, when we do the singer morning, for example, you give the people um, like a sticker with a lemon and someone has a sticker of uh, salt and someone has a sticker of a shot glass. So if the three people that they don't know each other, they get together, you know, you might, you're walking around the club and you see someone with a lemon and you have the shot, then you have to go look for someone with salt. And then the three of you go together to a bar and they give you three shots of tequila, you know, it's that kind of stuff that makes, makes the crowd interact with each other. That's, I think that's the key. That's part of the success of, of El Rogue. Yeah. I, I think that's, it's really interesting. Um, the difference between i guess the the kind of typical dark room nightclub and what you guys do yeah. what, what do you think made the, the formula work so well now i, I mean know. you know free free tequila is just a little part of it there's something that's a silly little example it's just but like, like a silly, silly little gimmick i don't know because we come from the dark room with the strobe lightning and flashlights and a dj and I love that. I mean, next mm. week I have a party at Florida 135 and I can't wait for it, you know? It's, it's, I'm really excited about it and, and that's where I come from and I still, to this day, love to be in a dark room sweating and dancing to thumping techno music, you know? It's, I love it. It's like such a great experience. It is a very liberating experience, but this... I think this is something for that people that maybe they don't they don't like that much, you know? They like electronic music, like to have fun, but they might be a bit... Um, I don't know. Not too, not too comfortable in a in a club environment, so I think this is more, this is more of a non so clubby environment, uh, where you can have fun and people are crazy and nobody cares what you do next, what you know what happens next to you. I guess there was all this kind of untapped demand, right? So there's probably loads of people so. that kind of like electronic music but didn't want to go to to Look, a club until eight in the morning. We haven't we haven't invited inviting invented the wheel again? You know, is we using confetti? use uh, actors steel walkers decoration this is uh, these are elements that are used in many many different parties but i think we've just 
put them together in a way that nobody has put them before and it's just worked and i guess it's that uh entertainers since 1870 thing again right yeah. like it's just know it's just knowing about how to give people a good time i think it's that aim that you know when you go to Elro, uh juan senior is always there from open before opening until closing and he's at the door and he walks around the venue and he talks to the people and he talks to the kids and like hey how you doing are you, are you having fun i remember juan's uh granddad you know may he rest in peace um he used to, he was, his favorite DJ was Laurent Garnier. This, we're talking about a, a grandfather. We're talking about an old man. And he used to stay in the club until closing. And he used to walk around the venue at 5, 6 a.m. asking us, how are you feeling? Are you having fun tonight? What do you think of the music? This is, I mean, this is the owner. This is, and this is a 70-year-old man, you know, that is still to this day walking around the venue and asking the kids how they're doing. And he used to close the venue at 7, 8 in the morning and he used to go to church straight after closing the venue on Sunday morning. It's amazing. So th this is the kind of, you know, I think if you've worked in the industry, you see a lot of promoters, that all they see when they look at the crowd, they just see like 30 euros per head, yeah. you know? Yeah. And obviously, yeah, we have to say that way because there's a business you need to pay. We, we employ almost 200 people. You, you have to sustain a business model that is very expensive. But at the heart of this is making sure that people are having fun, you know? And with Elro, it happens because it's a very if it's a very expensive production, it happens that we, we lose money in many events, you know? The tour sometimes is not even profitable because of all the overheads that come together with the tour. But it just makes it together for a better experience when we do a festival in London, and that's where you can really make some more money because it's the capacities are bigger. But all the work that you do all year round on the tour, it just ends up or you get like sold out like like we did last year like 14 sold outs in a row in amnesia which is unheard of you know that all that work that you do all year round and <laughs> you suffer sweat blood and tears it you know it pays off in the end when you see these things and when you see pe people that are you know you open the doors to amnesia and by 1 a.m the whole venue is packed you know and it's sold out by 1 a.m that's that's just ridiculous and that's very fulfilling I guess it's that long-term investment, right? So it's having to yeah. think long. Like you may be investing so much time and energy in the warehouse to creating these experiences, to investing into booking talent, into putting on shows that may not make money, but yeah. the long-term payoff is what you're in Correct. for. Yeah, yeah. And this comes, again, as you say, from being like a long line of entertainers because we don't think about opening a club, making money and closing it down in five years and off we go, you know? Same comes back to what we were talking about working with the authorities and working, doing everything by the book because you're looking for that longevity. You're not looking to make a quick buck and disappear. You're looking to be here for the long run. Um, let's look into the future. We've talked about, <laughs> we talked about 140 years. Let's look at maybe the next let, couple. Let me get um, my crystal ball. Yeah, I get your crystal ball. Um, <laughs> so what's, what's been going on? We're coming up to midway through 2018. What's happening this year with Elro? What's going on? Um, Elro is uh, obviously this year is a very very big year for us I think we say that every year for the past four years a bigger <laughs> a bigger year even bigger but it's obviously Europe is, is uh, kind of well established for us um, there's still some markets in Europe that we, we haven't uh, done we, we just did our first party in Berlin about a month ago which went really well which was again a territory that I didn't think was going to work because of the seriousness of the business but it, it did it did well it did go really well um we are uh, establishing our festival in London, which is Elro Town, uh, which we're doing today. We're selling, last year we did 30,000 tickets uh, over two days. 
So we're aiming to do the same or a bit more because we got a bit more capacity this year. Uh, we launched in Elbro Town in Amsterdam and in Antwerp as well, which are both selling very well. Uh, those are kind of like the big formats that the, I think the, the, the brand is moving towards because uh, obviously, as I said before, the club, you know, the tour is, is really, A, is very, very tiring on the whole team and B, is financially doesn't make as much sense as doing bigger events. Uh, but it's, the tour is always going to be there uh, because we need to, uh, you know, it always comes back to you on the, on the big festivals and in Ibiza. Um, we are doing two extra shows in Ibiza this year, so we're doing 20 shows in Ibiza this year. Just the, twi- just just, twi- just, just the 20. Yeah, just the 20. <laughs> and, uh, and we're focusing on residencies as well. Uh, we think that the club, the club format is very important for us because that's where it really shines uh, in, in a super, super immersive uh, experience. So New York is our, as a residency, which starts, you know, the Brooklyn Mirage Avant-Garde this Saturday. And also we have a residency in Dubai, we have our Madrid residency, which is at Fabric, and we have Barcelona, obviously. And we're looking to, you know, to grow that kind of residency uh, circle to be like a global brand. And also for us, this is very important this year, Asia. We're starting to do a lot of gigs in Asia. We have confirmed shows in, uh, in China, in Japan, in Taiwan, and also South America and North America. is their key markets for us. Obviously, like South America is and Latin America in general is is huge, and so far it's been really, really big for us. We've already been doing parts for like six thousand people in Lima, in Brazil. So um, yeah, plenty of tra- <laughs> plenty of travel for you. Yeah, <laughs> plenty of carrot juices. Yeah, plenty of carrot juices <laughs> in the mornings. So how how do you guys stay ahead? So arguably, somewhat another promoter can come and put on an event. Yeah, book some artists and. Like you said, it's not you're not reinventing the wheel. It's you know there's confetti, there's circus hats, there's clowns, there's everything else. Yeah. Arguably, they can go and do that. Yeah, of course, and they what, do, and they do. Yeah, yeah, and they do. What what makes you guys stand apart? What what's made you so successful, and what's going to keep you successful in the future? I think one of the one of the main things that we've always done is never look at what the other guys are doing. You know, it comes back to being uh, ahead of the time for their now family. If you are ahead of the time, it's because you don't look at what the other people are doing and I think with Elro we nobody was doing this kind of stuff when we started yeah there was always still workers in, in Pasha or sorry in, in space in Ibiza years ago but it was more of the drag queen kind of uh, vibe if you know what I mean mm. um, so we just you know we just go ahead and we do what we think is right and we make mistakes you know, not everything is sold out and not everything is 100% perfect, but I think you learn from your mistakes and you try to grow and you try to bring different elements to uh, to the party. And one thing that we do at Elro is that every idea is a good idea, no matter how crazy it is, you know? <laughs> you can always, you can never know what can come out of a, of a crazy idea. So we just try to keep being relevant and trying to keep surprising people. We want people that when they come, somebody who's been to El coming to Elro for four or five years, I want them to come next month to Barcelona or to Ibiza and they would go like, wow. So surprise, it's all about yeah. the surprise, right? The wow factor is super important for yeah. us and it's one of the, you know, one of the key elements of the company, the, the ethos of the company. You know, we are all family, we are all equal, wow factor, you know, try to always be ahead, you know, try to always be transgress, you know, try to be ahead of your time. But the wow factor for Elroy is, I think, is the, the one that defines it uh, the best. 
Uh, I just want to change lanes a bit into maybe as we mentioned the traveling thing and the amount of stuff going on yeah. for you personally. Like, how do you keep on top of it? There's you're running. You've got so much going on. You know, your your phone's buzzing all day. Tons of emails. You know, carrot juice on its own is not yeah. enough. Um, how what? How do you keep productive and focused, and also kind of balance work and life in an industry where you, it is a lifestyle business, right? I mean, that, yeah, that's what, what entertainment's about. So, how, what, how do, what works for you? I, it works because I think I'm the luckiest person in the world because I, I get to work in something that I'm passionate and something that I love, and I think that that just makes it work for you. You know, you make it work. Of course, there's days that I'm like, oh my God, I just want to kill myself and I don't want to go to work today because we all have those days, whether you love it or not. Because, you know, last weekend I was in Seville, the weekend before, I don't remember what it was, but two weeks ago I was in Miami. Next week I'm in doing the Florida one through five, then I'm going to Ibiza, then I'm. It's just like every week you're traveling, every, pretty much every weekend. I get like maybe four or five weekends off a, a whole year where I can stay home and, you know, be with my girlfriend, which <laughs> is nice. But, um, you know, if, if what you do makes you happy, your work doesn't feel like work. I, you know, for me, picking up the phone and checking emails, it doesn't, doesn't really feel like work. It, you know, I love doing it. And yes, there's harder days than others, but, you know. How do you keep going on the road? When you're, when you're touring, do yeah. you, are you spending a lot of time kind of just trying to eat well or be in the gym a lot? Or I, do you, do you just kind of push through and then... I, I, I don't have time. My girlfriend's going to hate me for this. But I don't have time to go to the gym. Even though I sign up for I shouldn't whole, have asked. For a whole year. We might have to edit um, that out in case Victor's girlfriend's no, yeah. listening. <laughs> I do have two dogs, which keep me... I, I say they always keep me healthy because I, I like to take them for at least an hour walk before I go to the office every morning. And that, at least, is a bit of exercise. Um, I try to eat well, yes, uh, of course. I do try to eat well, because otherwise, you know. It's, and you need to be sensible, you know. You're working on the road, you're always at nightclubs. If you're not sensible, then, you know, you're, you're going to burn yourself very, very fast, very, very quick. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you know, you just need to be sensible with... Um, with your lifestyle and you need to you need to try to keep a healthy balance and the traveling pff, you get used to it to be honest at the end our traveling is is not like we go for a week every time we go away you know it's normally you fly in in the afternoon or in the evening you go for dinner do the party sleep for a couple of hours and fly back home or even fly back straight from the party I'm more of a fly back straight after the party oh, you prefer that I prefer that yeah because then I, I, I hate hotels. It's, I, I don't like them. You know, when you when you spend your weekends in a different hotel, you end up hating hotels. And if I can, and it, the travel is not too heavy, I prefer to come back home in the morning and at least I know I'm I am home. You know, yeah. I can sleep for a few hours and then I'm, when I wake up, I'm at my place. I don't have to wake up in a hotel, wait for the plane to go and go to the airport again. And by the time I get home, it's nighttime. So I prefer. I prefer to wake up at home if I can. So I'm going to take you back out of home, I'm afraid, Victor. Because I, <laughs> I want to ask you, um, for you personally, whether that's through work or just, just as a fan, what's been one of your most memorable kind of live experiences? With Elro, because I'll start with that one because it's the easiest one. And in the meantime, I can think what's the other one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Elro, I would say the most memorable time. Can I say two most memorable yeah, times? Yeah, you can have, have two. No problem, have two. Two more memorable times that I will will always stay with me would be... Uh, the first one would be when we did the Christmas lights switch on in Carnaby Street. Um 
for those of you who don't know Carnaby Street, which I'm pretty much sure that everyone knows, Carnaby Street is one of the most commercial but hip and cool. You know, I guess it's one of the most, it's probably one of the most famous streets in London, right? Yeah. I guess it must be. Yeah, but it's not like Oxford Street, where it's, I think it's way too gentrified and commercial these days. Yeah. I think Carnaby still has cool little shops and cool little cafes, and it has that kind of like more edgy, uh, you know, rebel kind of uh, vibe to it. Mm-hmm. So two years ago, we got a. I was in Ibiza actually, and I got a phone. I got an email, random email saying, "Hey, we are this agency, and we want you to do the Christmas lights switch on for Carnaby Street." And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, whatever." whatever. Someone's, <laughs> someone's trying to take the piss out of me. And they called me, and they were like, "Hey, we sent you an email a couple of days ago, and you know we're from this agency. We 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 are the agency, the you know the marketing marketing agency for Carnaby Street, and we want you guys to do this." I'm like, "I thought it was a prank." He's like, "No, it's not a prank. Obviously, as you know, these kind of moments are reserved for Kylie Minogue, Elton John, yeah. and stuff like that." And uh, yeah, after like months of going back and forward and talking, we did a street party in the middle of Carnaby Street where we did El Row and we managed to get like It's Everything and Patrick Tobin to play for us and yeah it was it was incredible it was one of those moments where like I can actually probably retire now you know <laughs> after doing after being because I lived in London for 11 years so I know how beautiful Carnaby is over Christmas and how important it That's is. That's a big thing. It's yeah. a massive thing it's a huge thing it was a free party and we we had an internal joke with uh, with uh, with the owner saying like oh imagine because they Carnaby didn't want to advertise who was gonna be doing the Christmas lights because mm-hmm. we were so popular in the UK that they thought it was gonna be too overcrowded and we'd have to be closed and so we had this inside joke saying like oh, imagine if we get closed by the police and we, we ended up getting closed down because <laughs> <laughs> it was like more than 30,000 people coming into Carnaby Street at the same time when they found out that it was it was a wrong doing it someone at their marketing agency must have been to a party right? yeah <laughs> so that was that was uh, one I will come back now to my personal one which was the first time I went to Glastonbury which for me seeing it on TV for many many years and never ever being able to get a ticket was very frustrating and in the end I was like okay well it's one of those things that I'm never probably going to be able to do and then I got invited to go to Glastonbury uh, a few years ago and it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. It was raining, it was muddy, it was horrible. I walked 70 kilometers over three days <laughs> in mud, but I had the best time ever in any festival. Uh, so that was probably one of the best experiences. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend Glastonbury to any, any yeah. I think you have to do that once, whether you like festivals or not, yeah. or you hate mud, you have, to, you have to do it. I'm, I'm turning 40 next year and I'm, we're celebrating at Glastonbury with a few friends because we're all turning 40 in the same year. And it's like, yeah. And coming back to the second one that I wanted to say, Elro, is when last year we got invited to host the stage at Glastonbury, which was <laughs> something that, like, wow, really? And uh, it was incredible. We, we hosted the stage at the Glades uh, with Love Bullets and two days, and it was just, like, mind-blowing. It was so busy. And for the closing, we managed to get a, a secret show, which was uh, Fat Boys Lean playing back-to-back with It's Everything for three hours. And that was just like, that was the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, so you are back at Glastonbury for the, for a birthday next next year? Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully for my birthday and for Elbro as well. Yeah. Excellent. I think um, it's one of those things like Arcadia and these stages that if, you know, if 
if they ask you back at Glastonbury and you can come back every year, why would you say no? You yeah, know? It's hard to say no, right? It's hard to say no. Come on, <laughs> it's best festival. Even though the there's, world. even though there's mud. Even though there's, I don't care. To be honest, the first year, the first time that I went, I was like, I kind of want to see the mud, because that's what I've seen in the TV, you know, on the BBC. I remember when I used to see John Peel doing all the the Glastonbury specials and. And I want, I want to see, I want to feel that, you know. So I went to Park Life, and it was muddy, but it was just, it was just horrible, you know. It was, it's a nice festival, but it was just not nice, being in the mud at yeah. Park Life. But being in the mud at Glastonbury has a complete, huge, different concept and feeling. And it was actually the worst year for mud because it just, it rained nonstop for the week of the setup or the during the last week of the build-up. So the mud was just like you were literally mud up until over your uncle. And but it still made it. I think it made it. There's something special. about that festival where it can be really muddy, but it almost adds. It creates a completely different experience, and it almost adds to it in yeah. a weird kind of sadistic way. Almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's one of those things you you need to experience it. And I'm I'm very, I'm a very posh person when it comes to uh, camping facilities and things like that. <laughs> I, I hate camping. I I just yeah, me too. I need to have my own shower. I need to have my own bed. And I think Glastonbury is the only place where I've gone for three days without showering, or just like, you know, baby wiping myself <laughs> to uh, try yep. not to stink. <laughs> that's the one place you're going to do it. Yeah, that's, if you have to do it, that's the place you have to do it. <laughs> Victor, it's been a pleasure chatting. Thank um, you so much. Same I'm looking here. forward to coming to the show on Saturday. Yes. Um, it's going to be fun. Good luck with all the travel. Thank you. Yeah, I'll try to survive. <laughs> Join us next time for another edition of Tickets. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or listen back through SoundCloud and Acast. Tickets is an HBO production. Find out more at hbo.com. <laughs>